Good evening, everybody. Almost forgot to turn the mic on. All right, if you need a Bible tonight, you can raise your hand, and we would love to put a Bible in your hand for tonight. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. Got a lot of verses to deal with tonight, so let's see what happens. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please come. We just invite you into this place. We invite you to be part of this worship service, God, who, imagine if we would come here and not seek to partake in your work, God. God, we just place all the things of our day, our busyness, our struggles, our sins, our pain, our suffering, and we just place it at your feet, putting it out of our minds and just asking for a fresh work in our hearts. We ask that you would cleanse our minds and cleanse our desires and cleanse our motivations and that tonight as we study what you have taught us, God, I pray that we would become different types of people, that we wouldn't walk out of here the same, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that your spirit would just indwell this place in just a tangible way. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 6. I'll keep, catch you, everybody, up to speed after we read. But starting in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of Valar. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent to Bet-Haron and struck them as far as Ekka and uh, Makeda. And while they fled before Israel, while they were going down, oh, and as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Bet-Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven as, uh, on them as far as Aska, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> at the time of Joshua, at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said, "In the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon." And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance. Uh, till the nation took vengeance on their enemies, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set before for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Notice the author of Joshua is not stuck on the sun and the moon, but he is talking about how amazing it is that the Lord heeds the voice of his people. So Joshua returned in all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Everybody with me? Yes. All right. 
Just a few more. Not to lie, a lot more. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Machda, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Machda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hands." And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant had remained of them had the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua at the camp of Mecca. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. We're getting there. Then Joshua said, "Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave." And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all of the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, this is really important, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on those trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded that, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they, they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Good job, everybody. Way to hang in there. In 203 AD, Septimus Severus, uh, emperor of Rome, began a persecution of the very early church because he believed Christianity was undermining the Roman patriotism. Because the Christian community in North Africa was vibrant and growing, he focused his attention on them, bringing persecution through imprisonment and death by gladiators and wild animals for sport. Perpetua and Felicity were recent converts in the North African Christian community. Perpetua was a woman of high education and nobility. She was married and had recently just given birth to her son. Felicity was a slave in Perpetua's household. Both were in the midst of their preparation for baptism into the local church when they were arrested and imprisoned with a small group of Christians. Both Perpetua and Felicity refused to give up their faith uh, and for the sake of the emperor, and when the day of their hearing arrived, Perpetua and Felicity were marched before the governor. They were questioned and asked to give up their Christian faith and to sacrifice as an act of worship to the emperor, and they refused. They admitted that they were Christians, and they refused to sacrifice. These Christian women were condemned to death in the arena, and it was said when they entered into the arena to die, they walked in confidently, purposefully, and joyfully. Even as these young girls were tossed by wild animals, they went over to each other and sat together in the midst of their deaths. A noble girl with a slave girl, no divisions, no status, nothing separating them, just united in their faith and living victoriously in the face of death. Perpetua and Felicity and her friends at the end were lined up one by one and slain by the sword. How did these incredible women of faith live victoriously in the face of such evil? 
Since we're jumping right into our story, let me catch you up to speed real quickly. So the people dwelling in the land of Canaan are beginning to realize that the Israelites mean business and that they're just not just some wandering group of nomads just kind of finding their way at all. A group of kings led by the king Adonai Zedek, who was the king of Jerusalem. This is really interesting because this is the first time Jerusalem is actually named in the scripture. Um, has come together, this coalition of five kings, to deal with this problem of the Israelites coming into their land. Uh, The complete destruction of Jericho and Ai was just the beginning. What really set these kings off was the fact that the people of Gibeon had made a peace treaty with Israel. And we learned through their discussion that Gibeon was a strong group of people with many warriors. And this city was a really important one in that region. If Gibeon has chosen to seek peace, what would happen to the rest of Canaan? To combat this problem, the five kings decided to move against Gibeon and punish them for making peace with Israel. So far in our study of Joshua, we have seen three to four types of responses to the people of Israel coming into the land. The first type of response is embodied in Rahab. She hears that the Lord has given Israel the land and by her faith, she has saved both her and her family. The second type of reaction is the one of the Gibeonites. They decide instead of fighting Israel, they should probably try to make peace, even though they did it by trickery. And then the rest of Canaan either fights against Israel or against the people that are at peace with Israel. And this coalition coalition of Canaanite kings decides to go to battle. And in verse 6, that's where the, the battle begins. It's important to note that verses 6 to 11 and verses 12 to 15, when we read them straight through, it seems like they're successive stories, one after the other, but they're actually not. They're parallel stages of the same event. So verses 12 to 15 are giving us more detail of what actually took place on verses 6 to 11. And both these stages detail a great and complete victory at the Battle of Gibeon. This battle completely contrasts the battle that took place a couple of chapters earlier when Israel was defeated by Ai. Do you guys remember that portion of scripture? You sure? Okay, good. Just making sure. Because there was sin in the camp and and also because it seemed Joshua was moving ahead without consulting with the Lord, Israel was defeated by a small number of soldiers because God was not with them. Their breaking of the covenant relationship with God caused them to fight a battle on their own rather than with Yahweh. But here we see after they have repented to God and after he had redeemed their failures, they do it the right way. They go to battle hand in hand with God. And what ends up happening is not only do they win this battle, but they end up, having, they end up pretty much not having to do anything. What's most striking about this story is that the author of Joshua says close to nothing about the actions of Israel and details on the opposite end the complete work of God in this battle. All that's said about Joshua and his soldiers is that they took the enemy by surprise and that they marched all, uh, and by marching all night and that they pursued them once they were running away. But the author of Joshua wants us to know that it was the Lord's work that defeated the enemies of Israel this day. Verse 10 says that the Lord threw the enemy into a great confusion. Verse 11 says that that the Lord threw down a great hailstorm that destroyed most of the armies. And verses 12 to 13 detail a miracle or a sign involving the sun and the moon leading to the ultimate destruction of these five uh, armies. All of that is to say that this victory belonged to Yahweh. 
This every action belonged to Yahweh. He was the one who gave the enemies into the hands of Israel, and he was faithful to his word in which he spoke to Joshua before the battle. Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. The once mighty and confident coalition of kings are now hiding in a cave, and Joshua orders that they would seal up the cave, deal with the rest of the soldiers, and then come back to deal with the kings. Once the battle is over and the children of Israel are peacefully walking back to their camp, that uh, they deal with these five kings. And the imagery here is so specific and it's so important. Joshua orders his commanders to open the mouth of the cave, bring out these kings, and once the kings are in front of them, he has all of his war commanders put their feet on the necks of these kings, clearly signifying a complete and utter victory. With their feet on the necks of their enemies, Joshua utters almost the same words that God said to him before the battle. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Joshua wanted to embody the words of Yah- that Yahweh had spoken to him and to bring the Israelites into this story, to bring them into this reality that God is their defender and he will fight their battles and that they will be victorious only because their God is the one true God and he has gone before them. You with me? For some of us, the imagery of people putting their feet on the necks of their enemies sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, When we read Psalms 110 verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, maybe a better way or an easier way to understand this is it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this seems like a direct connection to what, jo- to what Joshua is doing in chapter 10. Uh, Psalms, chapter, Psalms chapter 110 verse 1 is possibly one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Uh, I actually don't know if you can have a very important, the most important verse, but just for the drama of it, let's just keep going with it, okay? This verse pops up throughout the New Testament, and we're going to do a quick thematical study of this imagery of um, the, the enemies being put under the footstool of the conqueror. You with me? Yeah. Okay. Jesus first starts to quote this in Mark chapter 12. If you want to turn there, you totally can. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read all these for you. Um, but in Mark 12, 35, he says, uh, How can scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in, in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Here Jesus is implying, according to the Holy Spirit, the Messiah was not just a part of the lineage of of David, but he was actually much greater than David himself. According to one commentator, this is a description of his transcendent status, sitting at God's honored and authoritative right. This signaled in Jesus' final words, how can the Messiah be David's son? It is the same question Mark poses to his readers. The answer, of course, is that the Messiah is not simply David's son. He is God's son. Amen. But we're not done yet. 
Jesus wasn't the only one who used Psalm 110 in their teachings. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 32. And I'm going fast because I got them written down. I got to prepare ahead of time. So I'm sorry. It's just life, you know. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, you know the story. Peter is preaching possibly one of the greatest sermons of all time. And in the midst of it, in verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witness of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter is detailing in the day of Pentecost the same verse. He uses the same verse in Psalms that David wrote all the way back to say that, that God, that Jesus is the conqueror and he is highly exalted. He is the Lord and Messiah and his enemies will be under his feet. Are you with me? Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. We're not done yet. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 says, But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them clearly seeing that like there's still sin in the world and the enemies of God have not yet been conquered. But we do see Jesus, who, has been, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. The author of Hebrews sets out to distinguish Christ in the mind of his Jewish readers that Christ needs to be at his rightful place. The author uses the same language as Psalms 110 to set Christ as highly exalted and conqueror of his enemies. Are you up for one more? Okay. Paul used this language multiple times. We can go to 1 Corinthians 15 if we wanted to in the resurrection chapter, but we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19. This is one of the most famous passages in Paul's writing, and this is a prayer for the, for the Ephesians. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen? Thanks for hanging with me. What's the point? The point is that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself were saturated with this idea of the enemies of God being put under the footstool of him, of Jesus. And this, this imagery of a complete and holy victory permeates the entire scripture, and especially the New Testament. This image of Joshua and his men with their foot on the necks of the coalition of Canaanites is the same image we read about when we get Christ highly exalted over his enemies, of the powers of darkness, over sin and death, in the adversary, in all of it. 
Christ is now exalted over it with his feet on the neck of his enemies. The question is how? How did Christ have victory over his enemies? How did, what led to the enemies of Christ being placed under his feet? And was it a great battle against Rome where Christ and his disciples called down legions of angelic forces and, and went back to restore Israel to its rightful place in the world? And this is what James and John wanted when they came to Jesus and said, do for us whatever we ask. We want to sit at your right hand and your left. These positions of power and what they thought a great battle was coming, this, these positions of power were something that they craved. They wanted, in the end, to be just like Joshua's commanders, with their foot on the neck of their Roman oppressors. But Jesus responds in a way they didn't think he was going to. He told them, you don't know what you're asking. The position you're asking for is not what you think it is. My way is a way of suffering and death. And he ends by saying this to all of the disciples. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way Jesus conquered his enemies. He conquered them by suffering. He conquered them by becoming a servant, by dwelling in the midst of the poor and the marginalized and giving them the kingdom of heaven. How did Yahweh defeat the great powers of darkness and then place them under the feet of Jesus? It was through the cross. Through the Jesus way, Christ now rules and reigns over all his enemies. He has complete victory, and through him, we too now get to partake in that same victory. We have been bought in through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our faith in that good news, that we now can participate in that holy Yahweh victory. You know what I mean? Some of, you, some of you may be thinking, though, it's like, hey, Alec, you know, that's cool and all that Jesus conquered his enemies, and that's great that he's given us victory over sin and death and all that, but honestly, I don't feel like it. My life is a struggle every day. Every day feels like a battle between evil and good, and honestly, most of the time, I end up choosing evil. And day after day, it seems less like a victory and more of a defeat. If Jesus really did have victory, why is my life like this? Or maybe it's not even about your life. Maybe you just look out at the world and say, if Jesus really had victory, why is the world like this? Why are people oppressed? Why are kids hurt? Why is all of this happening? Why is there hunger and famine? And what's going on? If Jesus really did have victory, why is the world like this? A key theological idea that permeates the New Testament is this idea of already but not yet. This means that Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven, the new creation, the redemption of the Garden of Eden to earth here and now, and we get to participate in that kingdom. Just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in the beginning, he now is tangibly present in the life of the believers and the church in a way unlike before. The kingdom of heaven is already here. For that was the gospel Jesus preached. When he went around, he said, repent, change your thinking, because the kingdom of heaven is here. But it's, also, but it's also not here just yet. 
the full realization of the kingdom has not fully happened. Sin and the powers of darkness, even though they're defeated, are still wreaking havoc in their last moments. The full realization of the kingdom of heaven when Christ reigns and rules over all has not yet come to pass, but it will happen when he comes back. The theologian George Ladd said, the kingdom is a present reality and yet it is a future blessing. The kingdom is a realm in which humanity enter now and yet it is a realm in which we will enter tomorrow. It is at the same time a gift of God which will be bestowed by God in the future and yet it must be received in the present. All of that to say, while we have been, while we have been brought into Christ's victory in sin and the powers of darkness no longer have hold on us because we've been bought by Jesus Christ, we are still in a daily struggle against evil. We still are in a battle on the day-to-day against the evil because Christ, we are still waiting for the full realization of the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? For most of us, the biggest struggle is usually our flesh, the impulses and desires for sin that, uh, that rather than living in the gospel and becoming Christ-like, just take over our beings. We struggle against the systems of the world, the evil and the injustices that, that happen and that indwell in societies and cultures and people that create oppression and sinful ideologies and seek to destroy God's creation. And we also struggle against the adversary, the devil, we, who seeks to lead believers astray in attempts to crack God's image bearers and mar them for the, so that they don't bear his image any longer. We are still in a struggle how can we continue this fight? To have victory, how can we have victory over the great systems of darkness and that sin that engulfs the world around us? How can we, like Joshua and the men of Israel, have our foot on the neck of, of Christ's enemies? How can we partake in that on a daily, in our daily lives? I think the answer is prayer. In the early 90s, everyone was aware of South Africa's racist government, and they knew that change needed to happen. People like Nelson Mandela and Bishop Desmond Tutu had been fighting a peaceful battle against injustice and oppression. Uh, there was a day that came when 45 black people were killed in a, were murdered in a township uh, for no reason. And 15,000 people turned up to their funeral. And at this service, anger was surging through the crowd. Uh, they, were, they were ready for violence. They were ready to restore and to get redemption for, what, for their brothers and sisters who had been murdered. And, and seeing the potential for violence, Bishop Tutu stood before the crowd of 15,000 and he motioned for silence. And in his high-pitched, melodic voice, he began to speak. I am your bishop appointed by God, he said. Yes, that's right, preach it. I have been awarded the Nobel Priest Prize. Yeah, you got it. Yes, amen, the crowd said. Yet, do you see that police dog over there? That dog can go to beaches in South Africa that would not tolerate my presence. The crowd exploded. They were cheering and stomping, waving their handkerchiefs, ready to go out and get revenge. Tutu began, kept building the momentum. He had them eating out of his hand. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. He brought peace, or sorry, in the next 30 minutes, he used nothing but words, uh, the rod of his mouth, and this great man silenced the crowd and brought peace to the powder keg scene and closed in prayer. 15,000 demonstrators whom were out for blood went home in peace because of prayer. Because a bishop got up and said, we can pray and we can fight this evil 
in peace. Prayer won a victory against evil that day, and then soon after that, that peaceful rebellion turned out to, be, to, to win the ultimate war and, and kicked out the oppression of racism in South Africa, in that government. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> there, are, um, there are three types of prayer that are means for spiritual war, and this is, prayer is the means in which we gain victory over the enemies of Christ. And there are three types of prayer that I want to talk about tonight. And I know some of us in here, maybe you're a type A personality and you're like, prayer? Prayer doesn't win wars. We need to do something. Like, get out. Like, get rolling. You know, like, let's do something. You can't just sit in your prayer closet all day and expect something to happen. Uh, But if we look to the life of Jesus, everything he did was prefaced by prayer. Jesus didn't use prayer as a way of hiding or not working out the kingdom of heaven in his life. He saw it as the way to bring down heaven onto earth. He, when he taught his disciples to pray, he, he taught them to ask for God's kingdom to come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Jesus, prayer was the preface to everything else he wanted to see in his kingdom. Prayer was the means for finding spiritual victory. So we're going to go through three types of prayers. Each type of prayer or each mode of prayer has a direct correlation against one of the enemies of the spiritual life, the flesh, the systems of the world, and the adversary. And while there's a lot of crossover in this, uh, just work with me because I think there's a beautiful image that we get of prayer when we understand this. The first mode of prayer, are you with me? Okay. The first mode of prayer is confession. Confession is the act of revealing our sinful selves to the presence of God in prayer. Confession refuses to hide our sin before God so that he can lovingly forgive and heal our broken selves. One of the major mistakes, and this comes from an amazing book we're reading as a staff called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, one of the major mistakes we have made in our modern church is to understand or believe in the idea that when we grow in spiritual maturity, we confess less. Uh, But spiritual maturity is actually marked by a deeper understanding of our sin and a willingness to be naked and unashamed before God. When we grow in spiritual maturity, we don't confess less. We end up confessing more because God continues to reveal the depths of our depravity and the depths that make us a sinful person. When we confess, we look the flesh in the eye and we say we are free from guilt and shame of our sin. We are willing to expose our mistakes for the greater healing that is to come. Flesh no, the flesh no longer has its hold on our lives. When we, pra- when we are practicing the freedom from sin found in Christ by confessing our sins to God and to our brothers and sisters, this refusal to hide defeats the flesh. The second mode of prayer is intercession. Intercession fights against the systems of the world. Intercession is when we stand in the gap between heaven and earth for others. When we engage in intercession, we love others by asking God to move and to work in their lives. Intercession is a selfless prayer because it takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it onto others. Intercession wins a great victory against the systems of the the world because it defiantly says we are no longer bound by your powers. And there is one who advocates for us at the right hand of God who has power and dominion over any culture, society, or oppression that the world can come up with. There is one who is going to intercede for us as we intercede for our brothers and sisters and for people that we 
we don't even know. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of the world. When we pray intercession for others, we win the battle because the outcome has not yet been decided. We are not bound to the impression in the ways of our world. We can pray heaven come to earth. We are now participating in what God is doing on this earth, and we can see heaven move through the power of the Holy Spirit. You with me? The last mode of prayer is adoration. Adoration is a prayer of praise to God. Adoration is defiant because it looks at the ruler of this world in his eyes, the devil, the adversary, whatever word you want to call it, whatever title you want to give him, and, said, and says, you are not our God. You are not our ruler. We serve the one true God. Defiant adoration sees God for who he truly is, highly and exalted, the name above every name, the Lord of our lives. Adoration has victory over the adversary because in these prayers, we refuse to be moved and controlled by our circumstances or our struggles, and we say, Yahweh is God. Adoration is defiant because it's intimate. Adoration only comes from a deep sense of knowing God that comes from our personal relationship with him. Through thankful, we are thankful regardless of our circumstances or our trials. Tyler Statton, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, says, adoration is not always the overflow of our hearts. In fact, it rarely is. It is an act of rebellion against the empty promises of the world and of defiance in the face of circumstances. Prayer flows from the posture of our hearts towards God, not from a reaction to the world around us. Everything comes from the Lord's prayer after this movement is an overflow of the name of God being hallowed in the heart of the praying person. Adoration is defiant. It says no to the empty promises. It says no to the devil. It says God is our God and we will serve him for the rest of our days. Through these modes of prayer, we get to see victory in the spirit of the spiritual enemies of our lives. And just like Joshua and this beautiful victory um, that, that took place, it is all by the power of Yahweh. God is the one who fights our battles. And when we go to him in prayer, when we intentionally say, well, I'm going to come before you and I'm going to pray. I'm going to praise you for who you are. I'm going to intercede for my brothers and sisters. And I am going to confess my sins. God moves on our behalf. When we pray these things, we get to experience the kingdom of heaven now. We get to experience everything under the feet of Christ. Can I tell one more story? We hear a lot about revivals in churches. Uh, we get teachings about us longing for a revival in our age. We, we hear stories of past revivals. We hear uh, the story of the Jesus Revolution, or we hear stories of what's going on in China and what's going on in Africa right now. And we just, uh, we get all excited and it's like revival, that's so cool. Um, but you may not know this, but there's a revival happening in our country right now. <laughs> On February 8th in Wilmore, Kentucky, what started out as a routine chapel service, chapel service on the ca campus of Asbury University, there's been a revival that's been birthed. Uh, from that day, there has been nonstop prayer today, and the Super Bowl didn't even ruin that. Here are the words of Professor Thomas uh, Leons, who he's somebody who has studied, uh, he spent most of his doctoral, doctoral work on revivals. 
This revival is happening on Asbury's University campus. A chapel service in Hughes Auditorium started on Wednesday, February 8th, and has not yet ended. In the days since, there have been an organic rotation of public confessions, repentance, worship of all sorts, proclamation, preaching and testimonies, prayer, and public scripture readings. The stage is largely empty. The worship team is off to the side. The altar railing is full without a hyped-up altar call, uh, and people come to kneel as the Holy Spirit prompts them. Reports of healings and prophetic utterances are present. Children play on the edges of the meeting space as people do earnestly the business with God. I love that. At multiple points in this past week, the capacity has reached, uh, has full capacity has reached in Hughes Auditorium, and the chapel across the street has been open for overflow. He continues and says, these kind of dramatic encounters with God's Holy Spirit ultimately prompt different sort of responses in each type of person. There are those who are wayward or deadened believers, and this encounter produces confession, repentance, and revivification. For those passionately devoted to God, they are spurred towards further obedience. Historically, there have been two types of responses towards revivals in the church. One part of the church usually grasps the Holy Spirit's vision. They can see God moving, and they actively participate in what he's doing. They throw off the systems of the world that have crept into the church. They decide to confess their sin, and they refuse to be divided by differences and seek, to be a pe- seek the people on the fringes of society and bring them into the church. They refuse to let the cares of this world stop them from seeing the Holy Spirit move in their midst. Unfortunately, though, that's not how all respond. Other churches and other people in the church get consumed with the problems of this world. They place their hope in politics or institutions rather than the spirit of God. They focus on the cares of this world that lead to their divisiveness by finding problems in others and judging those who are participating in this movement of the spirit. And I was, as I was reading, I, I got an email this morning from, from that professor because uh, I'm on one of a, a blog and I was just reading it and I was like, God, I don't want to miss this. Like I'm in Nevada, you know, and they would probably, you know, they're, they're far away but I don't want to miss this move of the Spirit. And, and as I was thinking about it, I was like, what, what causes people, what is going to cause us today to miss, to miss this move of the Spirit? And I don't have a word from the Lord, but I think Thomas Lawrence said it right when he says, in our hurry-filled, overscheduled Western American culture whose obsession is pro- productivity, achievement, and consumerism has saturated every corner of its life, life has simply ground to a halt in this little, little corner of Kentucky so that people can prioritize spending time soaking in the manifest presence of God. That's what's going to keep us. What's going to keep us is ourselves our divisions, our hope in the wrong things. What's gonna keep us is our, our consumerism and the things that have crept into the church that, that we think are good, but the reality is, is they're not part of the Holy Spirit's movement. Finding ourselves all the way back in the story of Joshua, like how can we see victory in our lives? How can we see such a movement of the Spirit happen with you and me? Like I read that story and I'm like, God, I want that. I want that in my life. I'm not asking for anything crazy. I'm just asking for your Spirit to move in my heart just like you're moving there. And how can we have that victory? 
What I think is we can see victory over sin in, in a, and we can see a move of God's spirit in this world by a complete and utter, utter devotion to the intimate, ordinary work of prayer. That revival meeting started by praying. The gospel choir had been singing at chapel that morning and they just decided not to stop singing. You know, leave it to the gospel choir to start a revival. And, and young Gen Z kids decided, you know what, we're just going to keep praying. Like, we're going to skip our class. We're going to move on. We're not going to be held by schedules. We're not going to be held by our plans. We're not going to be held by productivity and quizlets and all of that. We are going to pray. And we're going to see God move in our lives. I long for this. And I think when we, when we open ourselves up to this intimate, ordinary life of prayer, we will see God move in our midst. I long for this. I long to see God move in my life. I want to take a stand. I, am, I want to refuse to hide my sin before God. I want to get my eyes off of myself and to focus it on others and pray for them. I don't want to get caught up in the problems of UFOs, balloons, and gas leaks. I refuse to let hurry culture of our Western world take me away from the presence of God. And what would happen if all of us chose that tonight? What would happen if we decided no longer I'm turning off Fox or CNN, whatever side you're on, I don't care. I'm turning that off and I'm saying, God, I want your presence. I want you in my life. I want a move of your spirit. I'm willing to be a different person. I want a deeper level of obedience. I'm not satisfied. Do you want victory over the enemies of your life? Do you want victory over the enemies of the spiritual life? Do you want to be placed right next to Christ with your foot on the enemy's neck? Not because you did something great, not because you went to war, but because Christ suffered and died for you. If you want that, ask simply, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray, Lord, and you will find that. I want to end with a testimony from these revival meetings that our sister Rebecca Serrano sent uh, us. So shout out to Rebecca. Thank you. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is what someone wrote on Instagram due to, because of, while spending time at these revivals, this revival. What I can say is that students have been praying and worshiping and repenting, repenting, that's so key, for 150 hours and counting, and it's spreading. Nonstop meetings are now being reported in Lee University in Tennessee, Cedarville, Ohio, and Ohio Christian University. Students are hungry for Jesus. They are the leaders of this effort, the same students that are often judged and labeled as entitled and lazy. Well, maybe we've misunderstood them. Because while many of their parents and grandparents have fallen victim to fear, finger-pointing, and putting hope in politics, these kids are weeping at the altar day and night. Don't take that as a generational fight. We're just, you know, we're moving on. It doesn't matter. <laughs> For those skeptical of the hype, these meetings have been incredibly unsensational, non-emotional, no light, smoke, or charismatic voices. On the contrary, this is humility, repentance, prayer and sitting under the authority of scripture. The altars are wet with the tears of the hearts broken by the love of God. 
This is a demonstration of the grace of God, an invitation to step, step out of fear and shame and into the Father's love. Could, be the, could this be the last day's outpouring? I think so. We've seen 2,000 students respond to Jesus in some of the most secular universities in America the past week. On Monday, we received word that the 86,000-seat football stadium at Oklahoma University has been booked by a student-led outreach. This is the largest student-led outreach effort, uh, effort ever heard of in the American history. God is moving, he is speaking, and the intercession continues for you, for your friends, your neighbors, the prodigals in your life. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for us. He is worthy of our praise and lives lived in devotion, and he is calling us out to leave the safety of the 99 and to be after the one. He is the one we need to stay close to, and he is still speaking and saving the lost. And so what if we invited the Holy Spirit to change our hearts toward the lost and broken around us? So many have been hurt, judged, and jaded by those calling themselves believers. It's time for a true Jesus movement. Come Holy Spirit, light a fire, start with me. May that be our prayer tonight. Let's pray. Start with us, God. Light a fire in our hearts. Show us our sins so that we may confess it to you. May we be open and naked and unashamed before you. Give us people that need your, your love that we can pray for and we can intercede on behalf. Help us, God, to, to, to praise you in the midst of our circumstances, to praise you in the midst of the pain, to praise you in the midst of trials, to praise you in the midst of persecution and suffering. God, we want to praise you no matter what. We want to look at you in the eyes and say, Jesus, we love you. Mm -hmm.